Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Irina. And this is our review of Nothing in Common, starring Tom Hanks, Jackie Gleason, Eva Marie Saint, Hector Elizondo, Celia Ward, Barry Corbin, and Bess Armstrong. Directed by Gary Marshall, released in 1986 on a $12 million budget, it grossed over $32 million at the box office. Now, this was Tom Hanks trying to change in his career from going out from straight silly comedies to do more dramatic work. And that didn't really happen for him and take off in a way until big in 1988. But this was one that struck a chord with me at an early age. And I didn't see it in theaters. I was too young to see that. I caught it on like a, I don't know, a free HBO weekend or something. And I watched it because I knew Jackie Gleason. Uh, my brother and I were fans of the Smokey and the Bandit movies. Growing up, if you grew up in the South, it was just kind of a thing, especially with dudes. And I, we watched the Honeymooners reruns, like, you know, the Back to the Future families and stuff like that. And so I knew who he was, and I I knew who Tom Hanks was, because I'd seen Splash at that point, and I, I think I'd seen him on TV, and I thought, oh, yeah, he's funny. And I remember watching this and it just, I just broke my heart, you know, and I have held on to this movie ever since. It was never a big hit, but it was one that definitely struck a chord with me, like I said. So, Irene, have you ever seen this one before? No, I hadn't until you suggested it. I think we were having some deep discussion about Tom Hanks and kind of touched on a couple of movies. And, you know, this one, particularly for you, had an emotional trigger. But then we talked about another movie which kind of had the same idea and we just went with it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is part of a twofer we're doing. We're going to do a Billy Crystal movie uh, next time around called Memories of Me. And that's one that you suggested. And we'll talk about it then. But yeah, this one was a big one for me. I, I Again, it just struck a chord with me. I think I know a lot of these actors from so many other things. I think I, was, I saw even Marie Saint on all kinds of stuff. I guess Who's the Boss is probably the thing that you know a lot of people my age know her from. But she's had a huge career. I know Hector Elizondo from a million things that Gary Marshall's directed him in. And I think uh, this was sort of an earlier role for him. Celia Ward is, a, is an Alabama native, so I have to know her like by law. I uh, haven't grown up in that state, uh, but as an actress that I, I've you know, watched for years and Barry Corbin, I think I, I first got introduced to him in war games as one of the colonels. And, you know, he's been in so many things through the years. And then I'm just going to put it out there. Like every guy, Gen X guy my age had like the greatest mom crush. Uh, it was between Joyce on Buffy and then Bess Armstrong's character on my so-called life. Cause she was on that show. And I, you know, I knew her of course from Jaws three, which I'm sure she really hates that. I know her from that. But I, I just knew her. So I knew all these faces in this little, little movie and I watched it. Like I said, a lot as a kid. And I don't know that I totally got all of it, but one thing that resonated with me was David's job. Tom Hanks, character's job in this was the first job I ever remember going and like researching. And back in those days, kids, you didn't Google anything. You went to the library and you picked up the Bureau of Labor Statistics you know, manual and you started flipping through occupations. And I looked up what a creative director at an ad agency was. And for many years, I used to tell people, that's what I want to do in Chicago of all places. 
And one of my, uh, we did one of those like time capsule things in sixth grade. And my teacher like totally misread my handwriting and thought I said be a police officer. So when, if I, <laughs> if I had gone back, they would have read that and I'd be like, no, it would have been creative director to that agency, but whatever. But I got that from this. And it's funny that, yeah, I didn't really follow that, but. It's funny that I held on to that for all these years of all the little things to pick up. But uh, yeah, the thing about this movie, though, is it it made money, but it didn't really hit at all. It was one of those movies, Cena. I didn't know a lot of these actors. I knew some of them. Funny thing, my memory of Barry Corbin is actually watching Lonesome Dove with my dad, which was, (laughs) you know, a fabulous miniseries and, and had everybody in it. But I really remember like sitting up at night. My dad and I, we would like lay on the floor with pillows under our chest and we had one of those. You know, the older TV that had the wooden box around it. Yeah, the console. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like sitting in front of the fireplace for us. So we would sit there. And I know my dad would pass out probably 20 minutes in the Lonesome Dove. And I would sit there for the full six hours. But Barry Corbin, I mean, that was where he knew him from. And he, I I don't know if if you ever saw it, but he played an absolute idiot. So it was kind of nice to see him um, play a polar opposite to what I'd remembered him being. Yeah, as a great um, character actor, I mean, he's played so many things. I, my wife remembered him as the coach on One Tree Hill. Uh, so that's where what she knew him from. And so we got a laugh out of that when we were watching this. But yeah, he's been in so many things. Uh, and a lot of these people have. That's the thing. And what I find is neat is to watch Tom Hanks at this age. I mean, he's almost 30 at this point. And, you know, but he still looks really young. He's got all that boyish charm stuff. And the thing that I always remember, too, is he's always drumming on something. And that would come back many years later when he produced and and co-wrote That Thing You Do and was in that movie with Tom Everett Scott, who... They need to do papers because that, that he is related to Tom Hanks in some way or another. Like they look the same, they do the same stuff, but it's about a drummer and all this kind of stuff. But it's neat to, I remember to that when I saw that movie years later. All right. That's funny that you mentioned that. that that's, that's another one of my, uh, I'm going to actually call that thing you do a guilty pleasure movie because I don't think anybody watches it anymore. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, I will, uh, our, our friend Brian, a co-host and co-producer here, a big fan of that movie. He and I've talked about it on his show tracks. We talked about it as a soundtrack that we love. And so, oh, yeah. it's, it's just a great one. Um, but you're right. Um, with the, the drumming aspect and the two of them. Yeah, you're right. They they have to do some DNA research because there's no way, (laughs) there's no way they're not related. I mean, the the guy could pass for Tom Hanks' son if he wanted to. It looks looks more like him than Colin does, which is kind of sad. (laughs) I'm sorry, Colin. (laughs) No, but it it was, it was great for me because I, I was never a fan of big. It just wasn't my thing. Typically I'm like, one of those sci-fi action girls. So for me to sit down and watch this particular movie was um, actually a feat. And for me to stay (laughs) engaged was a feat, interestingly enough. Um, What I really actually found myself loving about Tom Hanks is even though he looked like he was, you know, really young, his voice hasn't changed at all through the years. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It just held together all those years. And I mean, he's, you know, he's over 60 now and he's still acting and doing things and he can just, I don't know, make that voice into so many different things. I mean, and most recently, of course, he's, he was in the Mr. Rogers biopic, which, 
I mean, who didn't cry trying to watch that, right? I mean, the, the man the man does this to us. But I think it's neat though when people you know, when Tom Hanks was winning Oscars and and all of that the first run around with like Philadelphia and and Forrest Gump and all that kind of stuff. People were like, oh, where did this actor come from? And I'm like, I saw him do this same performance in 1986 or in a movie that was made in 1986 because I'll just put the cards in the table now. I think this is one of his best performances, and it's one that most people probably don't even remember or think about. But I think you get you get everything Tom Hanks can do in a movie in this movie and the fact that it didn't it didn't land with audiences to me is kind of amazing i mean it's a 40 percent on rotten tomatoes if you go to metacritic which is what i tend to trust it's 62 percent, but that ain't much better it's 5.9 on imdb so i mean it's it's right in the middle you know and i don't expect it to be a 10 out of 10 but i i'm amazed through the years that people haven't gone back and maybe revisited this so and same goes with memories of me next week which is maybe even more unknown so i'm glad we're talking about them here on film strip because we tend to do a lot of horror and sci-fi and action and we're trying to vary that up a little bit so this is the softer side of sears if you will. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of fun to be involved in the softer side of, uh, of this crew here. I, w- I was going to add that you were going down uh, your statistics here. There must be more people watching it occasionally because Google users rated it 81%. Interesting. Which so. gives it a big jump. So, you know, there's somebody out there sitting on their couch going, eh, it's got Tom Hanks. Maybe I'll watch it. Um, and they're not disappointed. You know, every movie has its moments, but they're not disappointed by Tom Hanks. Um, or anybody in this movie. Yeah, and really, we, we got to talk about the anchor of this is Jackie Gleason. And the story goes, Gary Marshall talked him into doing this at a point when Jackie Gleason was less than a year away from passing away. He had terminal cancer, was very sick at this point, didn't want to do movies anymore, had done Smoking the Bandit 3, which was a huge disaster, had done a couple of TV movies, and had basically just sort of retired at that point. And Gary Marshall told him, you don't want your silver screen legacy to end on Smoking the Bandit 3. So you kind of shamed him into it in some way. But he really just talked him into it. And the story goes that Gleason... When he met Hanks and met with Marshall, said, you know what? I'll do it. But you can tell that he is very sick. Like, I, I don't know that it really hit me until maybe even watching it this time, how much he is sitting down, how slow he moves, how little they really have him do physically in this film. And it was because he, he flat couldn't do it. I mean, the man was was very ill. No, and, and it comes down to even just his acting throughout the movie. I mean, you can, and, and we'll get into the plot in a minute, but um, you know, you can see him almost living this part as, as the movie goes through. Yeah. He's one of those actors that could do that. There's one scene and we, maybe we'll talk about it where he and Tom Hanks really go at each other and they called cut and Hanks like took this big deep breath or whatever. And Hanks told the story. He said, and Jackie Gleason walked up to him, put his hand on my shoulder and said, that's showbiz kid. And then just walked off, you know, and smiled like always. Just like he could just turn it on and off. And Hank said that's when he realized, like, wow, you don't have to just live with it at all times to to do this stuff. And so it's neat to watch Jackie Gleason again, even if it is his last role, because as sick as he is, he's still got a lot of power behind him. And we'll we'll get into it when we get into the movie. But yeah, loaded cast. Uh, Gary Marshall again, acclaimed director for this kind of movie. Does a lot. He's you know, known to do a lot of rom coms and a lot of dramedies and. 
those kind of things and even spun this off and tried to do a television show of it and it, it had seven episodes. I don't know if you've ever tried to watch that. I I didn't know about it until years later I went back and tried to watch it. There's a reason it didn't work. Like it just the magic was gone. But uh, I can see why they would try that. And that's something that you know Gary Marshall was into. So this is right up his alley, but it's one of his least successful films. Uh and I find that amazing because it looks like all of the rest of them. So why it didn't go is one of entertainment's mysteries, I guess. I you know I always like to give you some sort of confession of something that I didn't know. This was actually my introduction to Jackie Gleason. So it makes me want to kind of go back and watch all of the things he did uh, because I enjoyed him in this so much. It's such a storied career. Lots of things we could talk about with him for sure. Well, let's talk about this one. Why don't you give us a plot summary? All right. Tom Hanks plays David Basner, a young Chicago advertising executive whose career is skyrocketing. His personal life and eventually his professional life are derailed when his mother, Lorraine, leaves his father, Max, after decades of a loveless, borderline abusive marriage. David is now the go-between for his parents' faltering relationship while still trying to maintain his own life and make a big splash by attracting a major airline for an ad campaign. While his mother adjusts and finds happiness, Max's life falls apart. He loses his job as a salesman after it's clear to the company that he can no longer keep up the pace. His health is failing because he doesn't know how to and maybe sometimes even refuses to take care of himself. And David leans on his high school sweetheart turned best friend Donna, but even she knows the answer is clear. David is going to have to grow up and help his parents in the next part of their lives. David uncovers Max's health issues and rushes him to a hospital where he requires emergency surgery. Lorraine visits Max to offer support, but he shuns her away only to sob himself to sleep, realizing the mess he's made of his life. David makes a bold stand to stay with his father rather than accompany the airline boss to an important meeting because he realizes he was on the road to becoming just as detached from his personal life the way his father always was. David's boss, Charlie, covers for him and smooths things over with his young protege, allowing him to be there for his father, Max. After a successful surgery while wheeling his father down a hallway to leave the hospital, Max confides he is proud of his son, saying, You were the last person I ever thought would come through for me. David smiles, and we see an ending montage of David successfully balancing work and life and his now divorced parents who have settled into their new lives as well. And that's the plot summary for Nothing in Common. It's actually a pretty simple little story. It's a, a guy who's got a great job and is kind of a playboy and just sort of does his own thing. And as he puts it out in the movie, his lifelong goal was to grow up, get a great job, buy a big house show it to his parents once and then they would go away and die and he could live his life. And then he's confronted with the reality that that's not how this is going to be. And, you know, then we get to deal with all the fallout of his, uh, his parents dissolving marriage. I think when, where this starts is kind of right before somebody has kids, you know, we finally got everything put together. Um, we've got the house, we've got our jobs, we're adults. And then boom, somebody's pregnant. Um, because that's really the transition that's made here for David. He's, he goes from his lifestyle to all of a sudden caring for somebody and he hasn't had to do that before. Yeah. I mean, when we meet him, he's making out with a, an airline attendant in first class, getting ready to land from some island vacation that he's been on back in, you know, Chicago. And we think they're in bed together. And then, you know, the overhead light dings. He's like, okay, I gotta go back to work. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's changing clothes in the car. And I got to say, too, the thing about this movie that is so 80s, and it's not a bad thing, but it is so 80s right now, is all of the use of music and montage in it. 
to tell the story. And we get this great opening song, and I will put cards on the table now. I am an unashamed fan of Christopher Cross. I love the man's music. It's good, smooth pop music. I know it's not, you know, revolutionary, but the compositions are a little more intricate than maybe you would entail for a, a, a general pop song and i love the song here it's david's theme is what it's called i think the the hook of it is loving strangers but you've also got the thompson twins in this soundtrack but they don't get the opening song we get this kind of upbeat but rather melancholy pop song and if that's what you want you need christopher cross to sing it and i you get this great montage of him going through his motions running into the office and he's wild and crazy and all this stuff is going on and you think like man this guy's really got it going on but what you realize is that he is just sort of ignoring the things that are going to now be a big part of his life and they show up with his you know he's in bed with a woman and his father calls him and leaves him a message on his machine like yeah you might want to know your mom left me today <laughs> yeah it wasn't some type of message i was expecting um though at the same time it's, it might be the kind of message i would get for my father nowadays <laughs> but um and and not be phased by but for david it's it's a shock He's confused. And when he picks up the phone, his father says, oh, so now you pick up the phone. <laughs> right. He starts quizzing me like, you got a girl with you, you know, and all this stuff. And I mean, and of course, he's embarrassed by this and he has to do this whole back and forth. And I think it's neat, though, that their first interaction is over the telephone. And, and a note I made to myself here was I was like, this is exactly the kind of news an estranged father would deliver over the phone to his son. Like normally, right? You think somebody like might come up and knock on the door or talk to you, especially if you live in the same area. It's not like dad lives in California or something. And you just calls him on the phone like, eh, your mom left me, you know, and I mean, it's just out of nowhere. And when David goes to see him later, he's just like, he's like, look, I know you're busy. You got to go. And he's like, look, you called me three times last year. You know, like they have no relationship at all. And we have to sort of deconstruct and pick that apart. And that's what I think is one thing that's neat about the script and the way all this unfolds is it's it's told by the way they interact with each other. The first time is over the phone, which is shocking and abrasive and very distant. Right. And then even when he goes to see his dad, the place is, you know, it's kind of a zoo, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the place is a zoo for reasons we get into. But I think the goal here with the phone call is Max is grasping for attention. Um, mm. He has nobody there that's going to care for him. And he really has no friends because he's been so lost in his work. But another point I wanted to, to note here is the phone call shows us right out of the gate that his father at one point was a playboy that there's yeah. no question in your mind that Lorraine is Max's first love or first affair or first anything. Um, we, we know based on the questions that he's asking that there's some other thing, like some other connection between the father and son that's going to come up later on in the movie. And, and we see it as a theme. Yeah. I mean, he, he even says later on, and we'll get to that big scene where he says, that's one thing we always had in common. My father, you, me, we could always talk a girl into it with us. Right. You know, and, uh -huh. and, you know, we get the sense that David's the same way. It's kind of this revolving door through his bedroom and through, you know, everything else. And that's, what's neat to see as a character here is he is 
becoming his father, even though he doesn't think he's anything like him at all. And he's slowly becoming him. And that what he's confronted with it, what it does is scares him. But this is the jarring news that starts the whole process. And I can't get over the fact when he goes and visits Max at the apartment and, you know, he's, he's got the radio jacked way up. He's trying to cook something. And of course it's burning on the stove and he can't find the damn ketchup. You know, because your mother always hid the ketchup and he's got to help his dad find the ketchup. And that's sort of their bonding moment is find me the ketchup. It also shows us how incapable he is of functioning on his own. He's he may be cooking dinner, but he's pretty much forgotten that the, the food was on the stove. He's forgotten that he has this steak searing on the stove. And David walks in and the kitchen's just filled with smoke and everything's just a crazy mess. I do love the little detail here that they throw in as far as costuming where in Max's glasses, they're actually held together by a safety pin, Mm -hmm. which shows us where his priorities have been. It hasn't been making sure he can see what he's doing. Um, You know, he's not, he's obviously not sitting around reading a newspaper very much because he's not paying attention to those little things. Well, he's trying to, he's trying to read like the betting column at the horse race or whatever, but he's not paying attention to the self care things. And that'll be a theme throughout. I mean, we let it out the plot summary. He doesn't take very good care of himself. We'll find out later from Lorraine, his wife, how much she had to do to try to take care of him. And that, you know, he's, he's really in, capable of doing it. It's not he's incapable. He's too obstinate to do it, but he thinks, fine. What does he say? Like, I've never better. Glad she's gone. Whatever. You know, he's in denial about what this means for his life. And he, to the point that he can't even talk to David about it because as we've already established, they don't talk to each other. They have nothing to say to each other. Right. And that's why they are estranged. That's why the friendship uh, between father and son has fallen apart. Yeah, there's that transition that happens with everybody where you go from you, you're, you're always your parents' children, but at some point you become an adult and you're self-sustaining and things like that, and you have this adult relationship with your parents, which is different than you were even when you became a mature teenager in college and all that kind of stuff. And David never went through that. He obviously grew up at home, left when he was 18, and never came back. And oh, you know. Yeah. Obviously, didn't have any siblings either. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you and I have probably gone through that transition um, with our parents where all of a sudden they went from being a parent to being a friend, not just somebody that we take care of like a baby, which is David's big jump. But, you know, I I remember the first time my mom broke down in front of me and just had that absolute stricken moment of, Irina, what do I do? And Max doesn't outright say that to David, but calling him. Um, at work, calling him at home, giving him a hard time. That's his way of reaching out and saying, hey, I need you. Right. He's trying to do something. And so David's next move is to, of course, try to catch up with his mother and figure out where is she, what's going on, you know. And we meet Eva Marie St. Lorraine, who is this very quiet and just simple woman. And just so Eva Marie St. has always been kind of an elegant presence, I think. I mean, it's just sort of what she is. And she she very much embodies the character of a woman who finally had enough. And unlike Lifetime women, you know, throwing somebody off a bridge or shooting them or something like that in those <laughs> you know, in the cheesy movies, right? She just decided I'm done anymore. What am I doing? Right? David's gone. He's not coming back. Clearly, 
why am I here? And I love the, the conversation she has with him where he just kind of subtly says, so you just decided that that was it, huh, mom? And she's like, is that what your dad said? And then she lays out like, you don't understand how lonely it was living there after you left. There was no one to talk to. I remember that line. There's no one to talk to. He would come home and there was no one to talk to. Yep. I'd have to check his armchair to see if he was there. Right. And I was like, how lonely in existence. And if you look at their apartment, that's not a large place, right? The thing that really broke my heart about Lorraine is how she, she again talked about how lonely that existence was. And you just get a sense like she's had nothing else to do but just care for this man who won't communicate with her and beyond won't communicate with her, won't even like acknowledge that she's there anymore. And I don't know, it just seems so empty. And when you meet her, she seems like this little ray of sunshine. And so I can't imagine that person being totally ignored by somebody else. Well, we have to take into account how soon after their marriage, David was born because she had David there before he left. Um, he was her everything. He was her go-to person to talk to because Max was always at work. So for a long time, Lorraine's had that one person to talk to. And, you know, now she's stuck with kind of frumpy dumpy in the chair. Who's not taking care of himself, not taking care of her needs, you know, and, and obviously we're not talking monetary needs here. We're talking about emotional needs. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot we learn about both of them as we go down the road. Um, and I think I kind of want to bring that up later because there's a lot to mention in regards to how Max actually treated Lorraine down the road. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's going to be a it's the peeling the onion back in this movie. And that's what this movie's so good at is it's just layering us into this because it it did throw us into here's David's life. And now here's the phone call that changes his life. But we have to sort of piece together in our own heads what the rest of this was like. And the first thing we see him do is he he goes and sees his best friend, Donna. Bess Armstrong, who's playing a theater professor, I think is what she's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And she was like his high school sweetheart. And we learned from her that like she's been married once, it didn't work out. And her parents have been divorced since she was, you know, a kid. And so he's trying to talk to her about this and she's telling him like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like that's sort of been my reality for so long and it was better for him. Part of Donna's thing is she's putting up a wall. I think she's, she's always been there for him. And I don't think that being the one that got away was something on her part. It, it was, mm -hmm. it was completely one-sided there. <laughs> No, I, I, I think you could guess that David probably cheated on her, but they were. I don't know whether he cheated on her. I think maybe there was a part of him that kind of saw the example his father led because yeah. David, until he gets involved with his parents, doesn't come across as an emotional man. In fact, we don't really see him emote until three quarters of the way through the movie. You see him act. And do a lot of facade and he's doing a lot of fun. And I mean, even his boss, Hector Elizondo, Charlie calls it out. He says, yeah, you do all this whiz bang stuff, but now this is, you got to go bring in business. You got to be serious. You can't just be cute. He's, he gets off just kind of being cute. And isn't it that the stewardess or the, the flight attendant says to him in a bit like, are you involved with anybody? He's like, what well, does a self-involved count? <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing is like Donna calls him with that too. She's like, you're really immature and selfish. And I love his response. It's like, do you know how much money I make for thinking this way? <laughs> you know, but you see why they are friends. 
Right. Oh, absolutely. Because there's a yin yang aspect to the friendship. Yeah. And, and I, I love the fact that this Donna character comes to us and she's not just the girl next door, the one that got away or whatever. She's got her own life. He's just still a part of it because he keeps introducing himself into it. Like we never see Donna go to him. He always goes to her. And it's not saying that she's not appreciative of it or doesn't enjoy his company, but she's not exactly seeking him out. Like anytime he needs help with anything, he's got to go play golf with the, airline guy she's got him out showing him how to play golf you know and he you know when his parents are driving him nuts and she's got a friend over he goes and interrupts it right because that's his anchor in life and all this stuff and she can't be i think at one point she even says to him like i can't keep being this for you you know because we don't have a we don't have a relationship we're just friends you know Mm -hmm. and so anyway i love that character though and i think she plays it so well when that part could have been just the girl sort of pining and waiting and relief and she's not waiting on jack she's got stuff to do well yeah and she's very genuine about it um even though we can see in her face that you know she still has a soft spot for him she's very genuine about it and um unfortunately for david she does put up that wall but he meets that time and time again because he's seeking out somebody who's going to give him the same loving care that his mom gave him Exactly. That's what he's looking for. So, but he's not going to get it from her. And that's what you know, we find out. And we're going to see David go into action here now. And he's got to go get a new, you know, client. So he's hanging out at the bar with, you know, all of the, the buddies and he's got the bartender basically eavesdropping on some other ad agency who's about to lose an account. And, you know, find me out which one and I'll hook you up with one of my people or whatever. And I was like, what a, what a weird thing to do. <laughs> like he pulls that poor guy aside and he's like, look, I promise you it'll be worth it. You know, you don't even hear the dialogue or whatever. He's like, please just go be nice to the bartender because she's going to get us the lead or whatever. And I, it, it it reminded me of the way you found out information before the internet was you had to talk to people and you had to have people who would talk to other people for you, you know, and all that. And we still have that to this day. Right. But nowadays, like we're so relied on technology. Like if I really want to know something, I could just go dig that up. Like if you wanted to know what, what that ad agency's major airlines were and you could go and look and see the contracts as public record because they're publicly traded. So he could have figured that out on his iPhone in like 20 seconds. But in 1986, you got to have Jojo, the bartender do it for you. Yeah, that's right. That's why we have, um, let me Google that for you now. Um, <laughs> you know, so funny thing about this scene that we're talking about with the bar. So we see that, I, I think we see the outside of the bar before they go in. And that, the name of the bar, and it probably won't like sink in for you because I know that this is not one of your favorite movies. I don't even know whether you've seen it. Um, the bar's called Shenanigans, which if you haven't seen Super Troopers, you're, you're not going to get this reference. But there's a quote actually in Super Troopers, which made me laugh. And it made my husband's light bulb go on really big. And he said, hold on, wait, we have to stop the movie. And I said, what the heck do we have to stop the movie for? Really, what is going on? He's like, no, stop the movie. I said, okay. So then we rewound the movie. And he said, look at the name of the bar. And I was like, yeah, shenanigans. You know, we already made the joke of the restaurant in shenanigans. Yeah, I get it. And he says, no, wait, watch them walk into the bar. And you're now you're going to have to go back and watch Super Troopers just for this moment. um, Because Super Troopers is 30 years later, funny moment, you walk into the bar and there's writing all over the white wall in the back of the bar. Now, (laughs) fast forward 30 years later to Super Troopers about Vermont State Troopers. But the captain says, I swear to God, I'll pistol whip the next guy who says shenanigans. And you hear somebody say, hey, Farva, 
what's the name of that restaurant you like with all the goofy shit on the walls and the mozzarella sticks? And I thought, oh, my God. This is where they got this has to be where they got that quote. Well, apparently it's a spot in Chicago or was a spot in Chicago is like one of the things to do and see because all this was shot around there. I've never seen Super Troopers. And, you know, as I said, it was in my time capsule that I wanted to move to Chicago. I've never been to Chicago ever. I've never even seen it. So it's one of those bucket list things to do. But I'll have to add Super Troopers to that now because, no, I as most film strip listeners will know, big, broad comedies tend to miss my plate. And not all. All of them, but most of them, much to Brian's chagrin. I'll tell you what, I'm not a Super Troopers fan. I just remember these little things. And at this point, it was not even me who found this connection. It was my husband, but it made me laugh really hard. Um, So I think more people in in this generation now are going to have that little moment if they go back and watch it. Yeah, that is kind of neat. It's neat to see, though, the the way you you get the sense that this is a place where everybody goes. Like, it's like Cheers, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody knows each other. And they're constantly working. And what I love about this movie, as I already laid out, like, I love the montages in it. I love the montages of the ad team working because, even though I never did what Basner does for a living, I did work in advertising for a little while. And the creative process is very much like what you see here. It's every Everybody pitching something, coming up with an idea. Sometimes you go to the lucky cubicle and you try to, you know, think of different ideas, do stuff. And I, I don't know. I always got a kick out of this. And then having lived it a few times, it's funny. And even nowadays, like I will, if I'm getting ready to do a big presentation or whatever, I have done the whole get out of here. I'm in pregame on somebody and they have no idea what I'm referencing, but it's this movie because <laughs> I do the same stuff. I'm like, I got to walk through it. I got to get it, you know, and then I'm good. And I, I, I love the way that we get David work life told to us in montage because that is something that's so part of the 1980s that we just do not do anymore now every movie's four friggin hours long and we have to show everything and this this is a much more economical way of telling a story before we even get to where they're working on that the ad campaign he bumps into seal award which is fabulous we meet seal award and the first thing he does is we get tom hanks being goofy tom hanks where he picks up the phone like he's next to her and he's clearly going to try to pick her up right and it goes nowhere she totally blows him off and then he sits down to have drinks with Barry Corbin's character I think his name is Wooldridge in this thing and he's the head of the airline and he's trying to pitch him and you see David just just trying to sell him so hard and this guy is like you know I can eat my whole meal with a salad fork you know like he has no he's not interested in the pitch he just wants to see if this is somebody that he wants to work with and so David does his best and you try to get in with him and you know talk with him a little bit and they're ordering drinks and then she sits down and the look on his face like well that explains a lot <laughs> that she works for the company. It's only later that he figures out the big reveal. She's Woldridge's daughter, but I love Celia Ward in this movie because she is the epitome of the 1980s woman executive, the way Hollywood portrayed them, you know, super brassy and totally in control and doesn't, you know, she's as much a, figurehead of all of this and a driving force behind her business as David is on his, and she's not going to take any of his crap. And that was something that was changing. It was changing in the world of work and it was changing in Hollywood. Thank God, finally. And you had to get a good actress to do that. And Celia Ward can always pull that off. Well, she's so powerful. It's just a strong presence on the screen. Um, and she follows suit with what Wildridge says about her. I, I raised her to be a man. She's tough as nails. She's not going to let anybody get in the way of what she wants. Uh, And um, I do love the fact that she's very clear about what she wants. Whereas 
we have the polar opposite of her in Donna Martin, the best friend. Yeah, who maybe doesn't really know what she wants. You know, she just knows she wants to do her theater and have her theater students do amoebas. Um, oh, which well. <laughs> I took an intro to theater class once, and we did a very similar exercise. So that is not far from reality. Yeah. Um, so as an so. actor, I'll tell you, I've never had to play an amoeba, and I've never <laughs> taken an intro to theater class because I never would want to be an amoeba. But um, yeah. you know, I, I think Donna does know what she wants. She wants David. Um, Really? It comes up time and time again. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Because at one point she says, you know what? I can't do this with you. As you said, she says, I can't be your emotional punching bag. And she cuts him off. She says, no, I'm not going to put up with you. And then we see him through another beautiful musical montage with no lines from anybody. He's out to lunch with Celia Ward, having a glass of wine, having his you know, his salad. And he sees her walk by sweaty after riding a bike with her current boyfriend. And we get the exchange back and forth of the looks they're giving each other as she walks away. These longing looks between the two of them. I'll tell you the look that got me on that one is the look Celia Ward makes. Like you would expect her to look at this woman and sort of judge her and be like, who are you peon? But she doesn't, she looks at her and she, and I think she looks at her and him and is like, why are you two not together? Like she, she kind of gets it that her and David's fling is exactly that is what it comes down to. And we'll talk about some of how they fling together here in a little bit. Cause some of it is absolutely hilarious and abdominal and strange, <laughs> but, but back to the, what I think is neat about this movie in 1986. And I know, I know I'm putting on 2020 glasses for this, whatever in 1986, it was different to see a movie where women had this kind of agency and this much control over what they were doing. And it wasn't so obvious that they were falling all over the van, you know, like, am I wrong about that? I'm the dude explaining it to you. So please don't let me mansplain here on the show. <laughs> no, you're no, you're fine. Um, actually we still don't see as many women as strong as, um, Celia Ward plays Cheryl Ann Ward. And I think that because maybe she's kind of the caricature hmm. of that type of woman, that powerful woman, um, it brings it to the extreme where she's even emotionally detached. Um, you know, she there's, is. There's, yeah, like yeah, there's no love for David. Yeah, he that's is, the thing. There's no love for anybody. There's no love for anything. She is so straight laced and serious and business, and it's all business, you know, all the time. Even her relationships are clearly it's just business and and that's the it's almost the sad part as you can see that she is completely unable to relate to people and david has sort of turned that off in his brain but the truth of the matter is he's totally able to relate to people you know because yeah. he's very much like his mother who is a very big-hearted person as we'll as we'll learn yeah, and we see him try to get away with not having emotions to the point where there's some old lady in one of the hotels throwing coins into, like, the fountain in the middle of the hotel, you know, using it as a wishing well. And he just catches the coin in midair and keeps on walking, um, you know, like, hey, I took your wish away, and, you know, not caring about some simple pleasure that some little old lady has. Yeah, I mean, he just does all the all this kind of stuff. But then again, he can try to be this big softy. Of course, he tries to hook up with Cheryl Ann, and she ends up picking him up, which is fun. And then leaves him at his apartment. You know, that's when she drops on him, like, "Oh yeah, you know, that's my dad that you were having dinner with." And <laughs> I, I will say this though, man, he has a great like as somebody who works in career services. He has a great like networking recovery moment because he's already been kind of shut down on his pitch or whatever. And Warwards laid that whole salad fork line on him, and he comes back to him and he really charms him with the, "How do you handle the soup with that?" 
and he just uh, you, know, yeah. you get that big grin on Barry Corbin's face, and it's, it's like three or four times he does that in the movie, and that's his signal that like I now approve of you, you know. And that's what's fun is you see David desperately seeking this man's approval, seeking Charlie's approval, and why? Because his father never did that for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one hundred percent. He needs some sort of approval, which is why it's funny because we go back and forth um, with. Charlie and his needing approval of David with a whole toupee section. <laughs> <laughs> that is Does hilarious. It look good? Does it look good? Yeah. Now the real test. What's the real test? Will it survive the pool? And, and I'm sitting there thinking that damn thing's going to fly off his damn head in about two seconds. Cause he's been bald forever. <laughs> right. I know how, we can't have a movie. <laughs> With Hector Elizondo with hair on his head, it would just not feel right. It, it, it goes back to Superman. Well, it's even <laughs> later. Like he, David's talking to Lorraine after she she like got a job and she's you know really excited and he's trying to talk to her and his secretary's and all- teaching her how to type and like all she can do is stare at, at Charlie's head, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and- yeah, they're down at the pool and all she can do is is stare at his head. And when Charlie walks away, she goes, "That rug looks awful." Does he know? Well, he does now. <laughs> and can we, can, and can uh, we talk about how the parents go here? Because Lorraine literally tries to go on with her life. She gets a job for the first time in you know decades. She's moved out on her own. She's renting a room from like the little housekeeper that's retired in in the burbs of Chicago, and she looks like she lives in like one of the the neighborhoods in backdraft or something. And well, so you know, what I found interesting, you know, since it was the eighties and there was still some sort of segregation as she was moving in with a, with a black couple. Right. Um, so that's even a huge step for the eighties. And I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's cool because it shows you how accepting and wonderful Lorraine is. Right. And they don't call it out. That's the best part about Gary Marshall and his movies is he doesn't need to hit every nail on the head. I think he did in some of his later movies, but not this one. This one that just happens and it's just part of life. It's the same way that like the female characters are played. So all this stuff that's very progressive, if you want to use a word for it, just mm-hmm. comes off as just the way they operate. It's just the way life is, right? And some of it's good and bad, but I, I did like that. That's a great thing to point out. And what I think is neat is that Lorraine is like taking charge of her life for the first time in decades, and it feels good. And you see the way that they they shoot her and the way she's dressed up. She's always in bright colors and everything. And what do we see when we see Jackie Gleason? He's in dark colors. He's always in the dark. He looks very sad. Part of that is the man can act and do that. Part of it was he was deathly ill, so he couldn't look any other way. But they contrast them with her life is starting to recover and move on while Max's life is completely falling apart. Because we get to follow him for a day when it looks like he is the charmer of the world, right? He's got the pretzel guy that knows him by name, and he's handing out pens with his name on them, and he's talking to his sales leads in the garment industry and all this stuff. But you can also tell that like people are just sort of tolerating this guy because he has, he has, he's not really doing anything. You know, where I'm going to go back to you talking about colors too. One of the, one of the other reasons why we see him in the dark so much is he, he can't see. He's yeah. having difficulty with his vision. It's part, it's part of what is affecting his life so much. And me being the I person, sorry, I got to go there. Um, I see this often. And Jackie Gleason does a fabulous job of portraying somebody 
who is just literally shuffling through life in a cloud because that's where his head is. Because the only thing that's positive for him that he can remember clearly is things he saw when he was a younger man. So he's trying to live that again. Exactly. And they call out something in this movie with the illness. And I have to wonder, I can't find any proof of this, but Jackie Gleason was suffering from diabetes at the time. Uh And there's a big line where like Lorraine yells at David, like you don't go blind from diabetes. Actually, yeah, you do. Like we didn't know that at the time we were learning that in the 1980s, but that was a big deal for that to be the for lack of a better way of saying it, the disease du jour of this movie, because the go-to is always like heart attack or cancer, right? Like everybody can relate to that. But what Max has is more people have, and we don't talk about it or we didn't talk about it then. Right. And it was the first movie I'd ever heard of it in, you know, and as someone who lost a parent to complications of diabetes, I can assure you, yes, this is the kind of stuff that happens to you if you don't take care of yourself and if it gets out of hand. And I I don't know. I just, it, it always struck me as the being something that was so different about this movie too. And maybe that's why it didn't hit. People didn't want to relate to it or couldn't relate to it. But I think that's a neat thing that it points out. And I can't help but wonder if Jackie Gleason wasn't insistent upon that a little bit because he knew he was at the end of his life. Um, Yeah. And you know, if they took an education moment is really what they did. Um, They gave us a great, you know, father son story, but then the realization of, hey, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to end up like dad. You're going to end up blind. Um, you're going to end up sick. Um, well, better yet, you're going to end up alone. And that's the thing that Max yeah. says. He is alone. And what we, we got to get to this, this big fight that goes down because it's, it's just a scene chewing moment by Hanks and, and Gleason here where his mother finally tells him, like, look, you got to know your father stepped out on me a lot. And it wasn't after you left. It was before you were even born, you know, and what a what a thing for a mother, one to confide in her son with. Right. And then the son to have to deal with that. And then the way he goes and lays that all at Max is when they had that conversation about, yeah, we could always get it. You know, the Basner men could always get a woman in bed, you know, and they they have a there's a couple of funnies in it. But it's really the two of them going at each other. It was the scene where Hanks, you know, said Gleason, you know, tapped him on the shoulder to make sure he was OK at the end of it. And I I this one just wrecks me to watch these two men absolutely throw daggers at each other verbally here. Yeah, it, it, it killed me too. And um, mostly because I was looking at it from the point of view of the woman who had gone through it, you know, because since I am a woman, I'm, I'm able to kind of step into that. And, you know, he, he talks about, oh, you know, she was stiff as a board and there was no affection and all this other kind of stuff. And you really see that this man he, he browbeat her essentially, you know, their physical affection was not something enjoyable. It was one of convenience. It was, well, I'm going to do this because this is what he wants. And she was constantly wanting to please him, but didn't know how. So they lose that emotion, any emotional connection they had because they never had any sort of physical connection. And it's hard because you almost understand why Max did what he did, but that doesn't make it right because there's a woman falling apart because of what he did. Yeah, that's the thing is they're able to tell us this story about this man who on his wedding night stepped out on his new wife because she didn't know what to do in the bedroom. She was not accustomed to this, didn't understand all of this. And he 
it, he stepped out on her and got his satisfaction elsewhere. And as we'll learn, of course, it wasn't the last time. And you, you hear that story, but the way you hear him tell it, it's sympathetic. And that is an amazing thing to do because after Lorraine has laid that on David, we're like, oh man, F that dude, right? You know, like forget Max. But you hear it from Max's point of view, and that's what this movie is so adept at. And I, I give a lot of it to the script and the director, but also to our actors and particularly Gleason for making a man who was, who committed infidelity on his wife. And it's sympathetic. Like that's an amazing feat to do. And Tom Hanks gets the line of the moment though, when he tells him like, I'm shooting a commercial tomorrow about a family that loves each other. Cause that's the big pitch for the colonial airlines thing, uh, which is really cute. And I'm going to go fake it. Yeah. I'm faking it. I'm just faking it. And I was like, wow, what a, what a hard thing to say. Right. And mm-hmm. because he's come up, he's come up with his team. Yeah. He and his team have come up with it, but he's come up with this loving, wonderful way to display this airline based on, just things that he wants himself. What what a great pull! I had never thought of that, Irina. But because his team comes up with this idea of like no spreads, you know, powerpoints or they didn't have powerpoint then, no video packages and all this, you know, presentation stuff. Let's do something where we just show some nice slides of a grandma going to visit some grandkids, and it's all subtle and it's all about family. But I had never thought about the fact that this is the family David does not have. Yeah, and I think the whole thing was triggered at one point. By just the thought of a hug Mm -hmm. and, you know, creating an advertisement that made it feel like a hug made you want to have that family element. Um, Well, that's the thing you you notice, too. David never mentions his grandparents. So you get a sense that, like, he wasn't close to any of them at all. He hasn't really been close to anybody except maybe his mother. And that's, you know, been again, he's been gone for how many years? So he hasn't lived there in 10 or 12 years. So, you know, they... He doesn't have those relationships. So the fact that he's going to put one together, he was faking it all along anyway. But the fact that he admits that to his dad and he, he throws it at his dad to try to hurt him. But in a lot of ways, too, and this is me putting on my counselor hat here. That's him admitting it to himself, too, that I've just been faking this all along. Like we've all just been faking it. This is where we see him fall apart is he finally knows the truth about both of his parents. And he's been trying to work everything out for them and phone call from mom, phone call from dad, this is happening, I need this, go grocery shopping, I need you to take me here. And David, you know, he finally blows up. Um, And we all have these moments where, you know, oh, the kids need to go here, the kids need to go there. Um, And I sympathize with or empathize with David here because I have a blind mother. And it's, can you read this for me? We're going grocery shopping and it's a five hour trip. You've got to read every single ingredient on the box. So I, I like, I understand the, that moment of stress. And then he's got this commercial that he's putting together and he just loses it. It's actually a hilarious moment too, because Hanks is like yelling in a bullhorn and he's screaming at the director and he's yelling at the drunk grandmother who that's a hilarious touch, by the way, that the actress they hire is drunk for the shoot. And, <laughs> yes. so, and you know, so they're, they're doing all this and he's, he's losing his mind at everybody. And I love it that it's his buddy, the director that sits him down like, Hey man, it's okay. Like it really doesn't matter. And we've seen these two work together. Like they had a, I don't know, they had some sort of perfume commercial where one model like, you know, slaps the hell out of the other model. She's <laughs> so just barely putting on the aftershave and she smacks him with it, which is funny. But you, they, they have all this, but he, it's all played off as comedy because it's Tom Hanks riffing and doing what he was known for doing at the time. Um, which, you know, 
people like Jim Carrey and several others have sort of made a living off of for many years. But Hanks did it first, in my opinion, and he probably wasn't even the first of his own generation to do it. But he, he's doing all that, but there's a sadness to it, too, because you realize he's losing it because he has no one he can talk to. And then when he goes to the one person he wants to talk to, Donna, rightfully so, says, I cannot be your emotional you know, catch-all anymore. You're going to have to grow up and deal with this yourself. And she kicks him out. And he has to go and deal with it. And we see like this sadness come over him in the office, right? Like he stops joking with the one secretary that he's always screwing with at the office. Yeah. And he was like, I do too. And he just walks on and it's like, wow. Like, and I don't, I don't know. I, I found that to be some of Hanks, best acting is when he's just weighed down by all of this. He crests the mountain and falls and, you see him not only emoting in that one scene, but then digesting the emotions, the emotions of, oh, my gosh, my parents, this is, this is really what's going on. And as you said before, he doesn't mention his grandparents. He doesn't mention anybody. He doesn't mention an aunt, an uncle. He obviously has no siblings, no cousins, nothing. I mean, the people that he works with, they're his family. Yeah. So it's nice that we do see his director buddy take over and say, hey, we got you. And even more so when Max really gets sick later in the movie, his boss stepping up for him. Yeah, we'll talk about that Charlie scene because that one that one gets me still to this oh, day. Yeah. But so we see David take his father out. He goes to the jazz club. They're out very late at night into the early wee hours of the morning, and he's got to be up in like three hours and do more commercial shoots and stuff. And finally, Max's health gets revealed to him. And I got to tell you, like that's still disturbs me when they pan to Jackie Gleason's feet and the way that like his feet are just eat up with gangrene and, and effects of diabetes. And stuff. It's very, very sad. It struck me pretty deep because I've, I've had those people come into my office and I've seen it and they're in pain and they don't want to tell anybody. And this shows us why in other scenes we've seen Jackie Gleason's character just kind of shuffle through everything. Um, He's in chronic pain, which is why he's cranky, which is why he's angry, why he can't remember anything. Um, he's not taking care of himself. He's let this go too long. We even see a moment where David takes him to the eye doctor to get new glasses. And we see him go into the roundabout, wait for David to pull away, and then he walks out again. So he is being a defiant child. Mm -hmm. through this entire thing. Well, his whole thing is he spent all of these years taking care of everything and feeling like he was in control. And now he's no longer in control and he's having to let that go. And it's just killing him. Like it literally is killing him. And a lot of credit to Gleason because they did a little bit of makeup job on the feet, but not all of it. Some of that no. was very real. And to be like, you know, actors have all manner of vanity in the world. You know, present company, uh, excuse me, but this guy had the kind of career that like could have been very much kissed the ring and stuff. And to allow himself to be vulnerably photographed like that, again, it's an education moment that they're doing here. And it, it is a visual that if you've seen this movie, you will never get out of your head. Well, and it's not just a visual for when they pan to his feet and his own expression, but I wonder if this is the first time Tom Hanks even saw that. That's what I'm wondering too. Like if they because, got it straight from him. Yeah. The yeah. look on his face is a look of utter surprise and shock. And 
I I, I feel for him in that moment. You know, I'm right there with him. And, you know, I, not to project too much here, but my mother passed away several years ago. And I remember one of the last times I went to go see her when she was still coherent and she was in like physical rehab and stuff. And it was so sad to see the condition she was in. She couldn't move herself around hardly anymore. She was struggling, just trying to move little blocks on a table as part of her rehab. And it just, I just remember that. And, I, you know, kick me. I thought of this movie. During that, because again, it just made such an impression on me. I, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person to live through something like that. Everybody's lived through something like that with an aging parent. And it's sad, but it's also a moment when the veil is, the final veil is now dropped. There are no more secrets between Max and David anymore because that was the big one Max was keeping. And now David's like, mm, no, we're doing something about this right now. And he, you know, credit to David for taking charge and going, nope, you're going to the hospital. And Jackie Gleason is pitching an absolute fit in the background. It's hilarious in some ways. Oh, pitching yeah. a fit in his wheelchair. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it, <laughs> it makes me think of like my husband's grandfather. <laughs> Cause <laughs> you know, those things happen. You know, that, I remember one time my husband's grandfather went into the cabinet to get a thing of scotch and smacked his head right on the door because he fell over but it's these guys who are getting old and they don't want to say hey i need help or no i can't do that anymore um and then you know they're putting the timeout chair i mean max is essentially yeah. putting the timeout chair and then he's in the hospital bed and all of a sudden he's alone again yeah well he he, he tells david you got to get out of here i got to get some sleep you know you got to get away from me and he, he's trying to relate to him but he, he you know he doesn't quite hug him and he goes and then we see lorraine come and visit him and they have their last scene together and you talk about just breaking your heart like I, total credit to these two for doing this without yelling at each other because they're in a hospital and that's the thing they have this whole final breakup conversation Right there when she walks out and he absolutely just sobs is, oh, oh it just, it kills you, right? I mean, I'm tearing up now thinking about it. Well, no, I've been crying for the past three minutes, so it's okay. Um, but yeah, no, this, this one scene where Lorraine visits at the hospital, it's her, even though she's done, it's almost her olive branch. Mm -hmm. It's her saying, okay, let me see, let, let me, let's see what happens if I go to see him one more time. I'm going to see him one more time. And if he's happy that I'm there and realizes that he needs me, maybe I'll stay because it's easier to stay together than to break up. I mean, everybody knows that <laughs> unless it's really bad. And it, when she does leave and Gleason sobs, I, I turned to my husband and I said, I can't hold it in anymore. And he already had tears pouring down his cheeks. I thought, okay, at least we're both in the same boat here. It's hard to not watch that scene and not let it affect you in some way. And they're not the last one that'll do that to us here. But we, we see that, you know, he sobs himself to sleep with the next day, you know, David is going to be back with him. And we got to talk about what happens though at work for David because they, they've done the big presentation, the, the airlines on board and they're all real happy. They're loving the way the commercial looks. He's got to get on a plane to go with Woolworths to New York to talk to the investors there or something like that. And he says, I'm not. My dad's in the hospital. I got to go have surgery with him. Everybody else here can go. And the way Barry Corbin just goes after him and then to watch Tom Hanks absolutely lose his shit on him is some of the best stuff in this movie. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I was blown away by it. Uh, it it's the turning point for David to 
not only does he stand up to him, but he stands up for himself. He, he takes that moment to actually stop being a boy and start being a man. Um, and we see Cheryl Ann Wade kind of look at him like, wait a second. <laughs> you can even see the look on her face of, oh, that was kind of attractive. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about that because we, we, we talked about the relationship a little bit. But just to back up, like she is the one that is totally in control of that relationship from the beginning. He tries to pick her up. She blows him off. Then they finally reveal each other, you know, a little bit to each other. And she takes him home and then she you know gives him the big surprise. And then like they're out at her dad's farm when he's trying to woo him <laughs> or whatever and shooting ducks and all this shit. And they're watching these these horses service, you know, the stallion service, the prize mayor or whatever. And she's giving him this look. And I'm like, this is one of the most uncomfortable seduction scenes I've ever seen in my life. It, it was so awkward. And it, you see the horse wink, and then you see somebody else wink, and then the horse, like, sticks its tongue out, and then Tom Hanks licks his lips. And I looked I looked across the room, and I said, what the hell are we watching? And horse said, porn. That's what it is. We're watching horse porn. And I looked at Jamie. I was like, I'm going to let Jay have it over this one. What the hell did I just watch? I just watched five minutes of horse porn. That's not okay. <laughs> Shoved in the middle of this little family drama. Is that? <laughs> Wait, and but hold on. It's after they've gone duck hunting with Woolrich. <laughs> right. Yeah. After, after, after Woolrich says, my daughter tells me you're a good lay. And you know, he's <laughs> like, oh, and he, he fires the gun off inadvertently. Cause like, uh, oh okay. <laughs> but you know, that's again, that's where he drops that whole bit. I raised her to be an executive. I raised her to be a man. And she acts very much like the stereotypical man would. And I think you're right though. In that moment, she looks at him. She's like, well, holy cow. Look, Look who grew a set. Like she, like she's sort of sad to see him go, but she's also proud of him. The when she tells him goodbye, and I like, I liked that. That that's her. Our last scene with her is her saying, "Like we made a great team, but nothing ever lasts." But you'll be okay. And she just kind of winks and walks out the room at him. And this is after he is, you know, again he's lost his mind at Barry Corbin, and we get our f bomb of the of the PG thirteen film. And it's back before they really started monitoring that. But anyway, but what I love about that is that he does stand up for himself. And so he goes back to the hospital after that, and he he does something with his dad. Here, I thought this was so sweet. He's like, I got a couple of cigars. You know, maybe they'll let you have one in in the surgery. And he tucks it under his pillow. And this time he doesn't hold back. He gives him this huge hug. You know, and he's, you know, he and his father, you can tell, like, wow, that's what that feels like. Like, that's the yeah. first time they've obviously had any physical contact with each other in years. You know, the, the, and the important part of the cigar exchange is not that he brought him a cigar because Gleason's smoking a cigar through the entire movie. Right. Everywhere he goes, he's got a cigar hanging out of his hand. And he, they have a discussion about how they're not Cubans. And. When he brings the cigars to his father in the hospital, he says he specifically tells his father, who is barely awake on the bed after coming out of anesthesia, I got you Cubans or they're Cuban, he says. And then he gives his father the cigar. So it's not just the exchange of the cigar. It's the thought that went into the whole thing. It's David humanizing his father. Yeah. And he's, he's come through for him twice in so many, you know, little ways and big ways came through for him in that boardroom and he's come through for him at the hospital. And we got to talk about too Lorraine's kind of exit from the movie here is that she does one last prep of Max's house. So he's ready to come home and then giving David the key saying, I'm, I'm done. This is it. Yeah, she goes out, she goes grocery shopping, makes sure everything's clean. She cleans the house, waters the plants. 
Um, you see her even playing with a plant as she's standing there, just checking to make sure it's okay. Um, I don't think it's just for Max. I think it's for her too, because this was her home. Right. And she doesn't want to leave Max stuck in a place that is going to be unfriendly and remind him daily of that time when she wasn't there, but have him come home to a place that's a home and not a bachelor pad. And can we take a moment and talk about the friggin' ketchup? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they finally made sure they know he knows where the ketchup is. Yeah, yes. we can <laughs> we can see that Lorraine has found the ketchup and put it in a place that everybody's going to see where it is. And my husband hadn't seen the first 20 minutes where they're debating, you know, where's the ketchup? Where's the ketchup? And I started screaming, there's the ketchup. Look, she found the ketchup. Right. It's so important. It's such a big deal. But it's a little thing. It's, again, it's that little subtle stuff that just makes this movie kind of sweet and schmaltzy, but it also makes it smart and that it works together. And you can see this sort of evolution. What I really love here is how Charlie steps up for David. You know, like it, David has screwed up big time. The, this account is gone. That is major money. You don't do that and survive, you know, it, at any level. There's going to be repercussions. But what we'll learn in the aftermath is that eh, Charlie's pretty good at his job and he kind of calms Woldridge down and he takes care of everything. And I love what he tells David, because this is so important. And I, mean, I tell people this all the time, especially young people, when you're going into the workforce and stuff, if anybody offers to be a mentor to you, you take them up on that twice, you know, and you ain't got nothing you can give them at that point. But when it's your turn, you need to turn around and do the same thing. Cause I have people do that for me. And I'm at a point in my career now where I get to do some of that. And it's a, it's a blast. And what I love is the way Charlie talks to him here. He's like, you know, I was just like you, I was all over the place. And, when I finally got around to seeing my dad, he didn't even know who I was. He was, you know, his mind was gone to the point that he didn't even recognize me anymore. And you don't need to live with that the way that I have to. So I'll take care of it. You're okay. Do what you got to do. And, and we see, you know, he basically tells him, take your time. It'll be here when you get back. And, you know, we see David eventually goes back to work. So his job is not completely ruined. And I think that's a huge thing that his boss steps up for him like that. It is huge because we're able to enjoy the moments, um, you know, a, a video montage of David and Max having time at home and being mm -hmm. family, yeah, getting to know one another again, watching television together, reading the newspaper together, listening to music together. And one of the things that we miss here, that you and I missed here, what we didn't go back to is after Lorraine leaves the house. David takes a moment and he sits down and well, we see him turn on the tape deck next to his father's chair before he goes back to the hospital. He turns on the tape deck and he sits down and he looks at his father's glasses and he puts them on and he just sits back in the chair. Almost as if he's trying to see things from his father's point of view. Yeah, well, he literally is at that point, right? He's trying to sit in that chair in those shoes and because he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He really doesn't. And mm -hmm. you know, Max has pretty significant surgery. He loses his toes and part of a foot, but he can learn how to walk again. That's a pretty big deal. And you get, you get the, you know, the ending montages again where you see that David and Max have a relationship. David and Lorraine have a relationship. David has a job still. But before that, you get the heartbreak moment. And I teared up when I was reading the plot summary and I'm the one that wrote it. But that whole line about you're the last person I thought would come through for me is just the sweetest, perfect last line you could have for a movie like this. Cause no other dialogue is after that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it was a, a sweet farewell. <laughs> and I'm going to just 
stop there because I'm going to start crying on the other. Well, I want to ask you one thing because we do get a moment where David realizes Donna got her grant. So she's getting new theater seats for the little theater she's renovating. And he goes to sit with her on some of them. And he has this moment with her where they have that whole bit about, you know, my parents, you're the girl they liked. Well, I'm the other one they met, you know, too. And I, I had a question. I wrote it to you in the notes. I'm like, do they, do they get together? Is that what happens here? Cause it's not confirmed, but you kind of get a sense that like, yeah, they might give it a shot. I think what we see here is grown up David looking at Donna through new eyes. And I hmm. do think that 100% they do end up together because he, he finally realizes after watching everything that his parents have gone through and seeing the truth of their relationship, what he has in Donna. Um, he has everything that he wants in her. He just hasn't taken the time to say, okay, I have to put this part of my life first. So he reaches his hand out to her and he says, this feels comfortable. And she says, it really does. Yeah. It's a really sweet, sweet thing to see them too. And you get, again, you know, they, they've laid that Christopher Cross song on us once, but it appears throughout the orchestrations and the themes. Patrick Leonard weaves it throughout the whole movie and it's, it's David's theme. I mean, it's what the subtitle of it is. And I think Christopher Cross made a side career out of somebody's theme in a movie, but I mean, really, <laughs> but it's perfect for it. And it's a good, sweet moment. And we get that same swell again with Max and then the montage and we're out and that's it. And we're, off to the credits and that's the end of the movie. And we, you know, we don't know where they go and what happens, but we've got our little story as it's told. So it's the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So Irina, what are yours for nothing in common? The final thoughts on this movie are, I love the fact that it ends up ends on a feel good note. We could, they could have ended the movie with Max passing away and us mourning his loss or remembering the wonderful things about him, but we didn't. We ended on a, on a happy note of a family coming together. Uh, would I recommend this movie to, to anybody? Absolutely. I, I'd recommend it to everyone, especially any father or son who is going through some sort of strained relationship. But it, it really is, aside from that one F-bomb, it, it's a family movie. Um, I would even have my kids watch it. And I think that they would be just as emotional and understanding through the entire thing as I was. Um, as far as popcorn ratings, um, you know, it's not an extra large popcorn. I'm going to kind of put it right in the middle because it did hit my emotions and we'll give a medium popcorn. All right. Well, Again, I've put over this movie about as much as anybody can. I think I've mentioned it for years on various podcasts because it's a big one for me. It's not a perfect movie. It's definitely got its flaws. But the thing about it that I enjoy is, even for as long as it is, it's almost an hour and 50 minutes long. The montages really get you through it. The characters are fun. And you get to watch some real acting pros. And I mean top to bottom, not just our leads, but everybody really given a lot to a story that you know, lesser actors might have phoned in. And nobody here did. Everybody really came to play. They gave their A game and you get an A performance in what is basically a B movie. And that's, that's a high praise. And so I definitely think this one is worth revisiting, particularly if you're a big fan of Tom Hanks. And I mean, let's face it, who isn't really go back and watch this and you will see everything that you have loved about him for the last 20, 30 years of his career right here before it really took off. And it's the same performance. It's the same voice. Even when he yells, it sounds the same. It's, <laughs> it's amazing, you know, to watch this guy. And you'll see one of the great comedians of all time, Jackie Gleason in his swan song. 
and you get to see some great character actors and a lot of fun. Again, not perfect, but the soundtrack in it is fun. It's a sweet movie, and I think that's really why I like it. So I give it a large popcorn. I definitely think this one's worth it and definitely worth your time. I can't wait to come back next episode, Irina, though. We're going to talk about one that you recommended. It's in the same vein called Memories of Me with Alan King and Billy Crystal and Jo Beth Williams. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we kind of took a, a moment to compare some some old, not really compare, but to share some oldies with one another. And um, Memories of Me is one of my favorites. Uh, kind of strikes a chord like this one does for you. Yeah, so Filmstrip goes sentimental for this month. And that's okay, because we, we need to do that sometimes. Because there's plenty in our archives, folks, where you can hear us talk about crazy you know, Halloween sequels or alien movies or whatever, you know, ninja movies, whatever you like. Um, uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Of course, you can find our archives on the podcast feed or on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Take you straight to the anchor.fm site, where you'll see all of the links on the available platforms for the show. Please follow the show on Twitter at FilmstripPod or search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. Connect with us there. We we would appreciate it if you'd share the show and leave us a positive review. It helps other people find the show. Irina, tell folks how they can follow you on the internet. Oh, on the internet, you can find me at on Twitter at iSing, E-Y-E-S-I-N-G, or on Instagram at iNerd, E-Y-E dot N-E-R-D. We appreciate the support. So until next time, for Irina, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.